You're listening to an audio message from Harvest Bible Chapel in Granger, Indiana. For more information, visit our website at harvestgranger.org. We announced our theme last week, which is Lift Up Your Eyes. And uh, it is very appropriate that is our theme because of what we're going to be looking at, what we have been looking at in the news headlines in the past couple of weeks. Uh, we looked at Psalm 121, which he, we heard Micah quote uh, for us to remind us that our help comes from the Lord. God designed my life to be an ever ascending journey. So if you are stuck, you are plateaued, or maybe you're descending in your intensity and your passion toward the Lord, God wants you to lift up your eyes and get to a better place. He invites you to lift up your eyes and to get over some of those barriers that have been holding you back. And we learned that the direction of my eyes is going to determine the destination of my life. Wherever you're going to end up is going to determine by what you are gazing at now. And I want you to see here from Isaiah chapter 40, the word the Lord has for us this morning. As I opened this passage and began to dive into it this week, I heard from the Lord very clearly in the first two words of this chapter. Put your eyes on the page and it says this, comfort, comfort. My people, says your Lord, speak tenderly to Jerusalem. As I read that this morning, I realized that would be my assignment from the Lord today. My assignment today from the Lord is to comfort you. In order to do that, whenever we get to that particular assignment, we we come down here and we just get on the front porch a little bit and we talk. So let me just do that for a little bit. Um, Now, you have to understand a little bit of a preacher's job description. Preacher has two job descriptions. One, we just read, is to comfort the afflicted, okay? Now, I got to let you know, I'm not great at that. I don't really feel like my best thing is like putting my arm around people and like crying people through their trials and stuff. Um, I, but a pre- that's not the only job. The other job of the preacher is actually to afflict the comfortable. I'm better at that, okay? You're like, yeah, it's, I don't know why we keep coming back. You just keep beating us up, right? Well, now listen, to, now, so, so here's the thing today. Some of you don't need to be comforted. Some of you need to be afflicted. Uh, because you're way too comfortable already. If you think that a relationship with the Lord is just kind of snuggling up into his arms and him like stroking you and telling you how awesome you are. And, and you're not like on this intense, passionate pursuit toward holiness. And uh, it, I am not here to congratulate you this morning for that. OK, you don't need to be comforted. You need to be afflicted with conviction. You need to repent of sin. Get on track pursuing the holiness of the Lord. OK, OK. But if that's what you need, you'll have to come back next week because my job is to comfort the afflicted this morning, okay? To speak tenderly to you. And um, uh, by now, you've all seen the headlines of what's been happening in our country over the last two weeks or so. Um, We've seen hurricanes form in the Gulf and uh, that hurricane come right into the fourth most populated area in our country, in the Houston area. Those devastating floods, people displaced, Uh, The most vulnerable people afflicted there. And just a week after that, another hurricane forming off the Atlantic coast. And we kind of wondered where it was going to go. And and sure enough, it came right into uh, the Florida Keys and up the western coast of Florida. 
And we saw even the most vulnerable people there that um, were devastated by that. Eight million people lost power. And how many of you saw that nursing home where uh, the elderly uh, were, were eight people lost their lives in that, the most vulnerable among us. How many of you had somebody that you loved af- af- affected by that? And maybe friends, maybe you're even here today and, and you've decided to transplant yourself from Florida to northern Indiana. It's the only time it ever happens. It usually goes the other way. But uh, welcome to northern Indiana where we are hurricane free. Uh, has anybody told you about February? Anyway, we'll have that conversation later. <laughs> We have disasters here too. It's called winter. Uh, it's called February. So uh, anyway, it, it, we, our hearts break when we see that. And, and because of those two hurricanes, some of you aren't even aware of the disasters that are going on in other places on the globe. Halfway around the world in Nepal, in Bangladesh, in India, devastating flooding. And because they don't have the infrastructure we have, the, the loss of life was in the thousands of people. And the most devastating hurt, uh, earthquake to hit Mexico in 100 years, hit in the midst of all of this. Now, if you are a thinking person, there should be some questions come to mind, especially if you believe in God. Because when we see devastation and disaster, when disaster strikes, we we tend to ask questions like, where is God in the middle of all this? I mean, we've been told that God is good, but if God is good, then why does perceivingly bad things happen? If If he's good, he must not be in control. Maybe he's good, but he doesn't have the power to prevent bad things from happening. So, okay, he's good, but he's just... He's, he's lost control somehow. Well, you, we've been taught that God is in control. And so well, if he's in control, then why didn't he divert the hurricane or hold back the floods? Well, he must not be that loving if he let all of that happen. He, was, he had enough power to divert it, but he didn't. So if he didn't, he must not be good. And then, of course, we ask the question, why? Why, why God? Now, listen, it is not wrong to ask God Why? but it depends on how your tone is when you ask that question. You can ask God why inquisitively because you want to know His will, His ways, His character. God, what are you revealing about yourself in the midst of this? But it is wrong to ask God the question why accusatively. If you're balling up your fist and shaking it in the face of God while you're asking, why God? Then what you're saying is, if I was God, I would have made a different decision. And I don't think I want to submit to you as God right now until you provide the answer. So we open the pages of Scripture and we look to see if we ever find disaster. Um, The Bible tells the story of disaster. And so if we're going to be comforted here this morning, if we're going to hear tender words from the Lord, we're going to need to understand God's perspective on four things. The first of those is we need a proper view of hardship. 
a proper view of hardship. So let's get our eyes on the page here. We've opened to the book of Isaiah. Let me just kind of tell you where we are in the scripture. Isaiah is one of the larger books in the Bible, 66 chapters. It's divided into two different divisions. Chapters 1 through 39 warn of a coming disaster. God has sent prophets to warn His people, disaster's coming, disaster's coming, unless you repent, unless you lift up your eyes and get your eyes on the proper place of worship, then disaster's coming. It was a judgment of God that was coming. And of course, we know that this was the impending judgment of Israel that would have been, that were going to be taken captive by a foreign country. And so that is the warning that we have in chapters 1 through 35. Somewhere between the closing verse of chapter 39 and the opening verse of chapter 40, disaster strikes. Imagine North Korea launching missiles and invading our country, taking us captive. We would be asking, why God? Why God? Is that a disaster? And so that was what was happening to the people of God. And sure enough, God's people were taken captive by this foreign country. And then we open the pages of chapter 40, and what we read are words of comfort being spoken to people that were experiencing a disaster. And this is what we read. We already read it. Comfort, comfort. My people, says your God, speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended. I don't know what word you have in your Bible for the word warfare. Apparently it was a hard word to translate because I have a footnote there and my footnote says hardship. You could put disaster. You could put calamity. Uh, It was just a hard time. He says her warfare, her hardship has ended. In other words, there's hope. God is not finished. The pages of the Bible should have finished with chapter 39 of Isaiah. But we open to chapter 40 and there's hope. God's going to do something about the disaster. Her warfare is ended and her iniquity is pardoned. She has received from the Lord's hand double for all of her sins. Verse 3, a voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Anytime that we see disaster coming, there's always some preachers that kind of step out beyond really where they should and they they announce that somehow God is sending judgment because of a hurricane that hit a people or an earthquake or something. Well, listen, the reality is this. The world is a disaster. And it's a disaster because of sin. The Bible tells the story of God creating a perfect environment without death, without calamity, without chaos, without destruction. But because man thought he could improve upon God's plan, he crossed God's line, he took of the fruit, he ate of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which God said is off limits. In essence, he was saying, God, I can think I can improve upon your creation, and I don't think you know what you're talking about. I'm going to be my own God. And God says, fine, if you think you can do a better job than I did, go ahead. And so now the world is living under the curse of disaster. And so all of the pain, all of the heartache, all of the disease, all of the death, all of the earthquakes, all of the famine, all of the disaster is simply the unfolding disaster of creation under the curse of God's judgment. Romans chapter 8 tells us that all of creation is groaning. 
Every earthquake, every hurricane is a groan of creation, awaiting to be delivered from the disaster. And it's described for us here in uh, verse 3. Notice the way he describes the, the, the world that we live in. First of all, he describes it as a wilderness. In the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight the desert a highway for the Lord. Does it ever feel like the world's a desert? You're living in a dry land. It's like, are we ever going to find anything to refresh us? He describes it as a desert. Then he describes it as a valley. The valley shall be lifted up. Every mountain will be made low. Uneven ground will be made level. And the rough places made plain. The world you live in is a rough place. But notice the hope in all of this. He's telling us the way that we're comforted is by knowing the Lord is coming to fix it. He's going to do something about it. So what do you do in the hardship? You prepare the way for what is coming next. And then what's coming ultimately is described in verse 5. The glory of the Lord shall be revealed. In a very real sense, the world has yet to see the fulfillment of the glory of God, the manifest presence of God all over the world until God comes and fixes it. And so he says, one day the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. All flesh will see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken it. That's the day we're living for. If you can lift up your eyes and see the future glory that is to come, then that gives us hope in the midst of the disaster. These verses here, verses 3 through 5, were actually used in the New Testament for the ministry of John the Baptist. John the Baptist came before Jesus, and as he was one, a voice crying in the wilderness, he was preparing the way for Jesus to come, and Jesus began to do everything listed in here. He began to straighten out the desert highway for the Lord. He began to lift up the valley and lower the mountains. In other words, to make, ev to make God accessible for everyone through the ministry of Jesus. For those of us that have a relationship with Jesus, we realize the disaster we see all around us. Your personal disaster, whatever you're going through, whether it's breaking up with a boyfriend or whether it's a, a, a diagnosis from the doctor or maybe the death of a loved one. Yes, those are hardships. They're heartaches. But for those of us that are on this highway, we have access to God. Then we understand we can lift up our eyes over all of this and see the hope that is to come. But in modern Western American culture, we don't think that way. Americans have a lot of trouble having a theology of God that would allow us to endure any kind of hardship. Do you have a theology of God that thinks that God's job is to make my job easier? Is that your, is that your view of God? If you do, you have invented a God that is not described in the Bible. Do you have a God who never allows you to suffer? In America, we think that unless we have electricity, hot and cold running water, a padded pew, air conditioning, then somehow God's not being nice. 
Listen, only in America would you think that way. We, we, we struggle because of our own sense that God owes us something because we're awesome. We have a theology that says God exists to serve us rather than us existing to serve God. We forget that we are, we are undeserving. We're ill-deserving of anything from God. If we got what we deserved, we would all be in hell right now. Every breath, every ray of sunshine, every smile is a merciful gift of God to get us to lift up our eyes and give Him the worship that He deserves from our life. But when disaster strikes, our loyalty to God is tested to see if I worship a God who is good or whether I simply worship the good that God gives. You will never know if you worship the God who is good until the God who is good removes something good and all you've got left is God. Every disaster is a merciful act of God to get you to lift up your eyes beyond the good and beyond the bad to worship the God who simply is good. God is not good because He does good things for us. God does good things for us simply because He is good. And if you can't worship him when he removes something that is good, it proves you weren't really serving God, you were serving good. So do you have a proper view of hardship? Understand that every heartache, every disaster, every longing is put there to get me to lift my eyes for the day that God will make all things right. And my job until he fixes it is simply to prepare the way for his coming. Knowing that he's come initially in Jesus to begin the renovation process. But we're waiting for the day for him to complete the project. Until then, I will live in the unfolding disaster that is planet Earth. So don't be shocked when disaster strikes. Here's the second thing. If you're going to be comforted this morning... You must have a proper view of man's frailty. Look here in verse 6. A voice cries, and he says, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. You see the word flesh there? What is flesh? Everybody point to some flesh. Right there. It's right there. See the flesh right there? That is part of your mortality. I know some of you may have some Captain America shirts on or whatever. It's, it's all a myth, okay? You're not Captain America. You are flesh. And some of us have beautiful flesh. Did you see it there? It says all its beauty. Some of us have beautiful flesh. Some of us have withering flesh. How many of you? I won't ask. It says, all, but notice it says... In all its beauty, at best, it's like a flower in the field. Some of you are like a flower. It's so beautiful. It's so, but, but February's coming. 
So that's why it says in verse 7, the grass withers, the flower fades. When the, notice, when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Did you know that the Lord sometimes creates turbulence when He speaks? The Lord blows on that flesh. And it's like grass. And then in verse 8, he said, in, at the end of verse 7, it says, Surely the people are grass. On your best day, you are nothing but green grass. On your worst day, you're withered grass. And on your last day, you're going to be dead grass. You're grass. But then he says this in verse 8, the grass withers, the flower fades, except that get a proper view of your mortality. But the word of the Lord will stand forever. So that which will last is not flesh. That which will last is what God says about flesh. You have to understand, I am fragile. I am finite. I am mortal. I am I have a terminal illness. All of us have a terminal illness. I have an expiration date stamped on the container. I just can't see it. I don't know when the expiration date's coming, but it's coming. And it doesn't matter if you die in a disaster and you're carried out on a stretcher or whether you die in a nursing home and as you are gently wheeled in there you are all going to be carried to the funeral home. Your day's coming. A proper view of man's frailty is meant to get your eyes off your flesh, to get your eyes on something that is immortal, something that is stable, someone who is the giver of life, the resurrection and the life. If you're going to be comforted, you have to first be afflicted with the thought, I'm going to die. Like, not me. I'm, 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 yeah, your day's coming. And you have to embrace that and understand this. You, you're living in a body that is meant to live forever, but it's afflicted with the disaster of sin. Do you understand you are your worst disaster. You are living with a terminal illness. You are your worst problem. No matter what somebody else is doing to you, you intrinsically are a problem because you're inflicted with sin. And the wages of sin is death. And so... Only those of us that understand we have to lift up our eyes beyond our mortality to see something outside of flesh gives us hope for the future. And every disaster is a merciful act of God to help us understand the reality of our frailty and the urgency of repentance and faith. One day, God became flesh. The eternal God, immortal, invisible, became visible and mortal. His name was Jesus. And do you know what happened at the end of his life? He endured the hurricane 
of God's judgment. And it killed him. And for those of us that understand why he came, we understand that our frailty, our sin, has to have a hope outside of anything we can generate. And so we look to Jesus and we understand that God diverted judgment from those who repent and believe to Jesus. He experienced the hurricane of God's judgment so we wouldn't have to. So that we can have hope beyond the grave. We have to understand a proper view of man's frailty. Thirdly, if you want to be comforted here this morning, you have to have a proper view of God's sufficiency. A proper view of God's sufficiency. In the rest of Isaiah 40, God gives a little test. Kind of plays 20 questions with someone so that they would understand their own frailty and God's sufficiency and sovereignty. The test begins down in verse 12. Look at what it says. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? Have you ever been by a, a stream or a lake or whatever, and a little thirsty, and you, you scoop your hand down in there to get a little drink? First of all, have you noticed that uh, your hand leaks? Have you, have you noticed how hard it is to keep water in your hand? It's like no, how, no matter how hard you try, it just gets wet. I don't know where it all went, but it's hard to hold. That's a hollow of your hand. Do you see what God says in this verse? It says he holds the waters. He measures the waters in the hollow of his hand. I don't know what you were doing this week. I was doing a little research to find out how much water is there in the world. And here's what I found out. There is 340 quintillion gallons of water in the earth. God says, I got it. Got it right there. I, I haven't lost one drop. God holds the water in the hollow of his hands. That is so much water. If the earth was flat, no hills and valleys, no deep crevices in the oceans. If the world was flat, the water in the earth would cover the earth two miles deep everywhere around the globe. That's how much water. How many of you are glad God holds a little bit of the water back on the coastlines? And all he would have to do to send the worst disaster ever is to stop doing it. He wants us to understand a proper view of God's sufficiency and our frailty. The next thing he says down in verse 12 is this, who marked off the heavens with a span. A span. What's a span? Everybody hold your hand out like that. Stretch your thumb and your pinky finger as far as they can go apart. Everybody do that? What you just did was created a span. That's called a span in the Bible. God says he measures the universe in a span. How big is the universe? God's that big. Right there. How big is the universe? This is pretty big, right? And if you ever want to just boggle your brain with how, how infinitesimally small you are, think about the expanse of the universe. God measures in a span. We measure it in light years. That's the best that scientists can come up with us. A light year is um, how far light travels in a year. Now, light travels at 186,000 miles per second. On the count of three, I want you to snap your fingers. Three, two, one. 
Do you realize from the time the snap started to the time that it ended, light traveled around the world eight, eight times? That's how fast light travels, okay? Now, if you were to start a journey after church sometime, you want to go on a little vacation, if you want to go from here to the sun, 93 million miles away, it would take you eight and a half minutes to get there if you were traveling at the speed of light, 186,000 miles per second. If you were to continue your journey, by the way, do you know what that means? The sun could have blown up eight minutes ago. We wouldn't know it for eight minutes because that's, that's how long it takes the light from the sun to get here, okay? Don't worry, I think it's okay. <laughs> In February, you should be concerned. We never really know because of the permacloud. If you were to continue your journey beyond the sun to get to the edge of our solar system, it would take you about a day traveling at the speed of light. If you were to continue your journey to the next star, it would take you about 40 years. If you were to continue your journey at the speed of light, if you traveled for 100,000 years at the speed of light, then you would reach the edge of the Milky Way galaxy. That's just one galaxy. It would take you 100 billion years to reach the edge of the known universe. And God says, yeah, it's about that big. Matter of fact, whatever, I got, I, I, I'm like, I, I got other stuff going on. I can still handle your stuff. I don't know what's going on in your universe. What, God's in control of what's going on in his and if he's in control of what's going on in his, he, he's pretty capable and sufficient of handling what's going on in yours. He measures the universe in a span. It goes on in verse 12. Not only is God the God of the macro, he's the God of the micro. Look at what it says. He has enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure. That's a microscopic picture of dust. Now, when the Bible was written, dust was about the smallest particle you could conceive of, right? But about a hundred years ago, somebody found what they thought was the smallest particle, the building blocks of the universe, was an atom. And they thought, well, that's it. It's, that's the irreducible minimum. But then somebody split the atom. And they found, oh, now we have protons, neutrons, and electrons, and they're all spinning around. So we thought that was probably the irreducible minimum. Until somebody found out that the protons, the neutrons, and the electrons are made up of leptons and quarks. Yes, you are the sum total of quarks. <laughs> but that's just as far as our technology will take us into the smallest things. And God says he's enclosed the dust, the smallest particles of what the universe is made up of. And then he says, I have weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in balance. How much does the world weigh? Again, I didn't have anything else to do this week, so I looked it up. Hey Siri, how much does the world weigh? Couldn't do that when I was in school. The earth weighs 5.972 sextillion metric tons 
and it's actually gaining weight, like most of us. So I don't know how to explain that, but it's getting bigger. Verse 13 says, who has measured the spirit of the Lord? Hey, with all your scientific research, you might be able to somehow weigh it and measure it, but uh, you're never going to figure out how to measure the spirit of the Lord and what man shows him his counsel. Who did he consult and who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding. Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket. Think about a bucket filled with water. Stick your hand in there, then pull your hand out. The hole you leave would measure your significance. A drop in the bucket. And God has it all under control. Do you have a proper view of God's sufficiency? Without understanding this, when calamity and disaster strike you, you will question God. This will prevent you from questioning God as He questions us. Look down here at verse 22. It says, It is He who sits above the circle of the earth. Isn't it cool that the Bible knew that the world was round before we figured it out? I know some people think we still think the world is flat. No, Christians understood from the beginning because we read our Bible that the world is not flat. It's a circle. God told us that in Isaiah. Who, who sits above the circle of the earth and all of its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. You say, I thought we were grass. Well, you're either grass or a grasshopper. But either way, it's not a compliment, okay? You're insignificant in the grand scheme of things. And yet God, by His mercy and His grace, has chosen to love you and favor you and speak tenderly to you words of comfort. He invites you to know Him in the midst of your disaster. Look down at verse 24. Scarcely are they planted, speaking of us, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth, and when he blows on them with hurricanes and tornadoes and polar vortexes, they wither, and the tempest carries them off like stubble. Another word for tempest is storm, hurricane, and the Lord's in control of all of it. Then in verse 25, to whom then will you compare me that I should be like him, says the Holy One. Verse 26, lift up your eyes. You don't have to be afraid of what you see when the storm clouds are gathering, when your world is falling apart, when you have a terminal diagnosis. Lift up your eyes to the Creator. He's speaking of the stars. Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. He who brings them out of their host by number, calling all of them by name, by the greatness of His might. And because He is strong in power, not one is missing. Years ago, a scientist decided he would count all the stars. And he discovered there were exactly 595 stars. He published it. But then another scientist refuted it. It's like there's not 995 stars. You are way low. There's 598. And then somebody found 1,000. And then somebody invented a telescope. 
And then they thought that there was actually what they were looking at were not stars. They were looking at galaxies with a hundred billion stars. And then they found out there's a hundred billion galaxies, each containing a hundred billion stars. And God says, I haven't lost any of them, and I name them all. Do you know around Christmas time you hear these radio ads that you, you can like name a star? The, the National Star Registry or something? Listen, God's already named them all. You, you would just be nicknaming them, okay? <laughs> God's not going to change the name because you figured out a name. You know, like name it after your girlfriend or something and give that to her as a gift. No. A proper view of God's sufficiency. Lift up your eyes and consider who created all of these. If every person in the earth had a million books, the thickness of Webster's Dictionary, and each of the books, you tried to put the name of every star on every page, you still wouldn't have enough paper to name all the stars. And God names them all. And God knows your situation. And in the midst of your disaster, lift up your eyes. And then finally, a proper view of my opportunity. What do I do with all of this? What happens when things happen that don't seem good? How do I respond to God? What is the opportunity? Look here in verse 27. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord and my right is discarded by God? So God asked his own question, why? Why do you think God doesn't notice what you're going through? Your way is not hidden. Your problems are not being ignored by God. God knows every square inch of what's going on in your universe. Your way is not hidden. Don't feel like that somehow your rights have been violated. Do you see the word right there in verse 27? My right has been discarded. You have no rights. You just have responsibilities to respond to a sovereign God. Then verse 28. Have you not known... Have you not heard? You see, for some, the problem is knowledge. You just don't have the knowledge, but now that you've read this, you should have more knowledge. For some, the problem is not knowledge. The problem is that you're not listening for the knowledge. Have you not heard? Are you listening to God speak the words of comfort into the midst of your personal disaster? Have you not known, have you not heard the Lord, the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth? He does not faint or grows weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint. To him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary. You know, we don't think that until we're like about 30 and things start to break down. And you're like, for the first time, you're not as good looking this year as you were last year. Even young people need to understand there is a withering process, that you are frail. Even youth shall, be, shall faint and be wearied. Young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait 
for the Lord shall renew their strength. Do you see the word wait in verse 31? That's our opportunity. You're like, really? That's it? Is just wait? How many of you like failed the wait class in school? Just, like waiting is not like your best thing. A couple of weeks ago, Andrew and I went to Oklahoma and uh, saw my mom. And Oklahoma has yet to figure out the whole easy pass thing yeah. where, where you, you don't have to pay the toll, you know, like to stop the car. You, and and so, so Andrew and I are driving on this highway and, and we look ahead and there's a, there's a toll booth. And we're like, really? They want us to stop on the highway? Like, I don't have time for this. And, and yet, so we stop and there's like four cars in front of us. And then Oklahoma hasn't figured out yet that... Um, None of us carry coins anymore. They still have these baskets and they expect you to throw the coins in there. And so Andrea is like frantically going through her purse. And, and of course, none of the four cars in front of us had coins either. So we're all sitting there waiting, you know, and trying to figure out how long we have to wait to get through this toll thing. And Andrea pulls out. The, the, 65 cents is the toll. Not 50 cents. Not 75 cents so that you could, maybe you could find three quarters under the seat, but it's 65 cents. So Andrea's like pulling out a quarter and then a dime and another quarter. And then she's like, it's 65 cents. So she's like finding like five pennies and I throw that in there. They don't take pennies in Oklahoma. <laughs> so it's like still flashing. You can't go. And it's like, why didn't you just give me, she found another quarter. I'm like, why didn't you just give me the three quarters? I'm not paying an extra 10 cents for this stupid machine. You know, so like, who's got time for this? you hate to wait. And yet we are waiting in the midst of the unfolding disaster that is planet Earth. We are waiting for it to be renewed. And we are waiting to be renewed because we are the disaster. They that wait for the Lord. Waiting is not passive in this passage. When we're waiting, what we're saying is we keep obeying. We don't get so tired of the disaster. We don't get so tired of the pain that we stop waiting and we go off and we invent our own rules. God, if you're not going to send it sooner, I'm going to go find something else to do. This is a waste of my time. No, we keep trusting and we keep obeying. Waiting means relax. God is still good. God is still in control. He is God. It's going to work out exactly according to His plan. You can relax. No matter what you're going through, whatever the relational trauma, whatever the illness, whatever the financial difficulty, just relax. It doesn't mean do nothing, but it does mean I have an expectation. Waiting means expect that God is going to renew my strength. This is the promise. And it's one of the most powerful metaphors in the whole Bible right here in verse 31. Do you see it? They who wait for the Lord will renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Do you notice the sequence? If you were writing it, wouldn't you have written it in the other sequence? Wouldn't you think, well, first of all, I've got to, I've got to start walking. 
And if I get really good at that, then I can start running. And if I get really good at that, maybe I'll sprout wings and I can soar like an eagle. But that's not the sequence. He starts out with soaring like an eagle. Now listen, this is a metaphor. Let me just let you know, you can wait as long as you want. You're never going to sprout wings and be able to fly like an eagle, okay? It's a metaphor, but he's using something physically impossible for us to comprehend to get us to understand that it's going to take God's strength for you to do all three. It is, a, it is as impossible for you to walk through a disaster as it is for you to soar like an eagle over the disaster. And yet he promises all three to those who wait. In other words, you are going to have a supernatural strength that comes from the Lord to walk through a disaster, to run through a disaster, and even to soar over the disaster. Wouldn't it be cool just to be an eagle for a day? If you could just kind of see with eagle eyes what's going on down below, if, if you could just understand from God's perspective how small the pain and the problems and the disaster and the calamity is, one day somebody figured out you could strap a Go, GoPro camera to an eagle. And you could get the sense that you're soaring over all the microscopic junk that's going on down the earth. Listen, this is the way God wants you to live if you would simply lift up your eyes. Get your eyes off of the pain, off of the problems, and see from God's perspective, an eagle's perspective. Then you could walk. Then you could run. Then you could soar. I want you to stand with me right now. Let's all stand. Would you just bow your heads where you're at? Nobody looking around. I have no way of knowing how many hurricanes are represented in this room right now. Some of those hurricanes just simply may be loneliness. Some of those hurricanes may be financial collapse, divorce, abuse, neglect, addiction. Could you just simply admit, I am my worst disaster? Most of the pain is self-inflicted. Would you be humble enough to admit that? For those of us that would be tempted to ball up our fist in the face of God and ask Him why, would you just open that hand? surrender your right to be God get a proper perspective on your hardship proper perspective on your frailty a proper perspective on God's sufficiency and a proper perspective on your opportunity so right now you have an opportunity to trust to relax just tell the Lord in a prayer. Say, Lord, I trust you. I believe you know about my pain. I believe 
that you are a God who can comfort. While I'm waiting, I will worship. While I'm waiting, I know you're working. I lift up my eyes. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord, the one who made heaven and earth. Father, thank you for your promise that in the midst of heartache and pain and the unfolding disaster that is the curse that we live under in this world, that we know that you're not finished. Jesus, thank you for coming and absorbing the hurricane of God's wrath so that we could be comforted. God, I pray that each person here today would have a renewed strength, a renewed faith, a renewed hope because right now they are trusting the sufficient, satisfying work of Jesus Christ on that cross. And Lord, we want to prepare the way for you to come in power to renew and to fix that which is broken by sin. We believe that we're going to see the glory of the Lord together envelop the earth. We long for that day. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.